You are listening to audio from Western Meadows Baptist Church. Here at WMBC, we are disciples of Jesus who make disciples through the teaching of Scripture, prayer, and living together in community. If you would like to listen to more, go to our Apple Podcasts or to our website, wmbc.church. Please do not edit, copy, or sell this material without prior permission of WMBC. Thank you for listening. So this is our third week in uh, studying the book of Haggai, and so as we have talked about these weeks so far, we'll be, uh, we'll, we will be beginning in verse 12 um, and going through the end of the chapter, verse 15, uh, this morning. And so we have, after this week, we have three left to go. We'll break chapter 2 down into three parts. Um, but uh, so far, what we've seen with Haggai is, remember, this is um, set during the time of, the, of, 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 of after the Babylonian exile, right? So, so the people of Israel, um, throughout the kingdom of, uh, uh, throughout the time of the kings, um, when Israel was split up into two kingdoms, uh, the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah, the people continuously walked in disobedience before the Lord. There was, Judah had occasional kings that were, um, that, 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 that did follow the Lord, that did love the Lord, like Hezekiah or, or, um, or Asa or Josiah, but, but as a whole, both Israel and Judah typically were, were, were people, they were constantly disobeying the Lord and not following after his ways. And so the Lord first judged the northern kingdom of Israel by sending the, king, the, the empire of Assyria to destroy them in their capital of Samaria. And then finally, the Lord, um, uh, um, several, several years after that, he um, did bring his judgment upon the southern kingdom of Judah, which was the kingdom that remained loyal to the lineage of David. That'll be an important thing as we finish up Haggai at the end of chapter 2, the lineage of David. Um, so God did eventually bring judgment upon them through the new empire that conquered the Assyrians called the Babylonians. And so under the leadership of their king, Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar came in, um, he conquered the capital of Judah, Jerusalem, destroyed the city, broke down its walls, destroyed the temple, and then did a mass deportation of the people across the Babylonian Empire. And that lasted for several decades before eventually God sent, God called his people back to their home land through a new king and a new empire that conquered the Babylonians, King Cyrus of the Persians, right? And so King Cyrus, when he came into power, he issued an edict that the people of Israel would go back to their hometown, to their home country, and that they would return to Jerusalem and build the temple of the Lord. And as we saw, that's what they did. They went back to Jerusalem and they started ce- and they immediately started celebrating the feast that Moses had commanded them to celebrate in the law of the Lord and they built an altar so they could make sacrifices so they could do their burnt offerings before the Lord and they even built the foundation of the temple of the Lord and everything was going wonderful until they started to meet the opposition of the peoples that were dwelling in the land of Judah while they were absent. Some of these were even people descended from Israel, but were not true followers of the Lord. They claimed to worship God, but they also worshipped the other divinities, which as we know is not true worship. And so these people were harassing the people, trying to keep them from building the temple, and it worked. For 15 years, until the second year of the reign of a new king, a king named Darius, the people ceased to build the temple of the Lord. And as we saw last week, Haggai comes along. 
this messenger, this prophet of the Lord, and he comes to the people with a message. He says, these people say that the time has not yet come to build the house of the Lord, but you're building your houses. You're still working on rebuilding your things, and you're busying yourselves with your own homes, but my house still lies in ruins. And so the Lord told them twice, consider your ways. And he told them to look around at their life. He said, you, you, you put on clothes, but you're not warm. You're eating food, and it's not satisfying. You're drinking drink, and it's not filling you up. And you earn wages just to put it in a bag with holes in it. And the Lord says, you, whatever you bring home, I blow away. You seek after much, and it becomes little. Why? It's because you're busying yourselves with your own homes to the neglect of my house. And as we talked about last week, this isn't God saying, stop working on your houses. This was God calling out their priorities. It wasn't wrong for them to build their own homes, but it was wrong for them to build their own homes to the neglect of God's house, the temple of the Lord, the physical representation of God's kingdom on the earth for the Old Testament. And so the Lord was calling the people of Haggai's day through Haggai the prophet to consider where their priorities lie. Would they continue to seek after their own little kingdoms, first and foremost? Or would they seek first God's kingdom and his righteousness? And as God implied through these verses, once they would seek first his kingdom, as Jesus said some some 500 years later, all these other things would be added to them. And so... That was the message that we saw last week. And as I said last week, that's the, that's the heart of the message of Haggai. Everything else for this week and the next three weeks is all revolving around that one central message of where is our priority. Are we focusing on the Lord's house, the Lord's kingdom, the Lord's interest above our own, or are we busying ourselves with our own things? So, don't, so as we study this week, and as we study the next three weeks, don't leave behind that message. Because that's the central message of Haggai. That is the, 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 the entire purpose of the book of Haggai. And all these, the rest of this study of Haggai is just us considering, are we going to obey? Are we going to trust the Lord? Are we going to fear God more than we fear men? Are we going to serve the Lord even if it, meet, if it causes us to meet adversity in this life? Are our priorities to seek first God's kingdom? That's enough of an introduction. Let's read our text this morning. Finish up chapter 1 of Haggai. We will pray to the Lord for his grace to be upon us. And we will dive in. Verse 12 of Haggai chapter 1. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Sheatiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God. And the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent him. And the people feared the Lord. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message, I am with you, declares the Lord. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Sheatiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God. On the 24th day of the month, in the sixth month, in the, 20, in, the se- in the second year 
of King of Darius the King. Let's pray. Oh, Father. Lord, let us be a people that place your kingdom above our own. Let us be a people that seek your glory above any glory that we could ever have for ourselves. Father, teach us that through self-denial for your sake, to exalt you above ourselves is where we find our highest good. Teach us, O Lord, to seek after your face and to seek your interests above our own. And Father, as we study your word this morning, and we see the example of the people of Judah these 2,540 years ago, God, let us walk after you in the same manner. Father, as we hear your word this morning, I pray that you would open our eyes to behold wondrous things in your law. I pray that you would give us ears to hear the words that you are speaking to us. Father, may we find your word more desirable than gold and even much fine gold, and may it be sweeter on our tongue than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Lord, we cannot live by bread alone, but we are sustained by every word that comes from your mouth. And so feed us and sustain us this morning, we pray. And it's in Jesus' name that we said, <clears throat> Amen. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet as the Lord their God had sent him. Now, to be honest, if you spend a lot of time reading the Bible, this verse is a little unexpected. Throughout the historical narratives, we find God's people in a near constant state of disobedience. Even from the beginning, such titans of the faith like Noah and Abraham still walked away from the Lord at some point in their lives. Noah's sin is depicted as a sort of second fall with him getting drunk after coming off of the ark after the flood. And then Abraham, the man of faith, lied twice about Sarah being his sister in order to save his own skin and then impregnated Sarah's servant, Hagar. And of course, Israel's history continued to be littered with disobedience, which culminated in the Babylonian exile as an act of discipline from the Lord, as we've talked about. And as we've seen, even after returning from captivity, the, the people still fell into disobedience once more. They seemed to have learned their lesson from captivity. They rebuilt the altar, built the foundation of the Lord, were keeping the feasts and festivals, and then they fell into disobedience again. And so since Adam and Eve's very first rebellion, disobedience is the default state of the human heart, which makes the messages that we talked about last week from verses 2 through 11 a necessarily common matter throughout the scriptures. God's word, through various ways of speaking, repeatedly calls us to reevaluate our priorities and to center them upon God's glory rather than our own. And we need those wake-up calls because it is all too easy for us to busy ourselves with our own houses to the neglect of God's house, as the people of Judah were doing. And so their sin was not surprising. 
But verse 12 kind of is. In response to God's oracle through Haggai, Zerubbabel, as the governor of Judah, the descendant of David, Joshua, the high priest, a descendant of Aaron, and all the people obeyed God's message. Notice that they received Haggai's prophecy as the word of God. As the messenger that God had sent through this prophet, they recognized that God himself had spoken to them and they received the Lord's rebuke, responding with what? Obedience. Brothers and sisters, this is a beautiful portrait of repentance. Although we are not told that the people prayed a prayer of confession before the Lord, they probably did, their obedience to the Lord displays the reality of their repentance. Keep in mind that repentance, of course, means to turn away from sin and toward God. So thus, when Jesus began his ministry by saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. What Jesus was doing was he was calling all people to turn away from their sins and to turn away from their devotion to lesser kingdoms and instead embrace the kingdom of heaven which had come upon them in the person and work of Jesus Christ. So repentance is both a rejection of former ways and a new beginning. True repentance, therefore, requires obedience. And I think, as a great example of this, we should consider the powerful conclusion of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. It says this in Matthew chapter 7, verses 24 through 27. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them, will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against the house and it fell and great was the fall of it. Now remember, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus did not verbally call for repentance. But the entire sermon beckons for us to follow the upside-down nature of God's kingdom. We value strength, riches, power, and possessions, but Jesus calls us instead, and indeed says that God favors, God blesses the meek, the poor in spirit, the persecuted, and the pure in heart. So we are called to reject our former notions of how life and religion function and instead to devote ourselves to the kingdom of heaven. And so Jesus' conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount is very fitting because many people will hear the words of Jesus. Many will hear the news that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Many will hear the message that we must prioritize work on God's house above our own as a sound investment of eternal proportions. But not all will obey. Many will hear And some will do. But also some will hear and not do. And so in many ways, Haggai's description of the people's circumstances from verses 6, 9, and 10 through 11, right? Those descriptions of that when you gathered, I blew it away. You sought for much and it became little. You put clothes on and you were still cold. You drank, but you never had your fill. All those descriptions, those kind of meet Jesus' description of this man building his house upon sand. Don't they? Although they were busy with their own houses, nothing was working because of, in their disobedience, they were building on sand. 
but no longer. God spoke, and they displayed their repentance through their obedience. They set themselves to build God's house. And verse 12 then concludes by giving us a key insight as to why the people were now obeying the Lord. What changed? What's different? And the people feared the Lord. I don't believe it's possible to overstate the importance of this statement. In Ezra, if you remember, we saw that whenever the people returned to their land, they obeyed the Lord by rebuilding the altar, by laying the foundation of the temple, by offering sacrifices, and keeping the feasts and festivals as commanded through Moses. And if you remember, their obedience was fueled by fear. But it was not a fear of the Lord. It was a fear of the peoples of the land. It was a fear of all those people that were dwelling in there that would be adversaries, that would harass them, that would keep them from worshiping the Lord in all purity. And so their obedience came from a hope that the Lord would protect them from their enemies. So it was no surprise that when they faced adversity, when they started building the temple, and people began to harass them, people began to bribe counselors against them, their obedience faltered because God wasn't protecting them, or so they thought. However, 15 years later, their obedience is finally rooted in its proper foundation, the fear of the Lord. And as Proverbs declares, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Worldly wisdom, rooted in the fear of men, of course would have warned the people of Judah that it was not yet safe to build the temple. And so therefore they needed to focus on fortifying their own homes. It was safe and that was the better road. Let's build our homes and then we can focus on rebuilding the temple of God. But, once the people understood that God is more to be feared than men, they were able to see the true wisdom of obeying God. And indeed, as we learned in Ezra 4, the adversities the adversaries of the people of Judah did not stop harassing them even once they finished the temple. The opposition continued for nearly a century into the time of Ezra and Nehemiah, where the peoples of the land then tried to prevent the Jews from rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem. So the stark reality, brothers and sisters, is that obedience to God is often an an invitation for adversity rather than an escape from it. You get that? Obedience to the Lord is often an invitation for adversity rather than an escape from adversity. And after all, didn't Jesus warn his disciples that they would be persecuted for his sake? And didn't Paul and Barnabas encourage the faith of the disciples in Lystra and Iconium and Antioch by saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God? But if this is all true, If obeying the Lord invites adversity, why then is it wise to obey him regardless of the cost? We'll see that in these next two verses, verses 13 and 14. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message. I am with you, declares the Lord. Following the people's resolve to obey, the Lord gives Haggai another message for the people. And this one is shorter but it is a very crucial message. I am with you. Here, God is giving to his people an assurance of his presence with them. Now, let's not mistake what's happening here, because of course the people could not escape the presence of the Lord 
as was evident in the first verses of this chapter, right? Even though the people had neglected God's house, the Lord did not forsake them as his people. Yet his presence with them was one of discipline rather than encouragement. He brought drought upon them in order to turn their hearts back to him again. But let us not forget that the very presence of a rebuke from the Lord is evidence of his grace towards us, is evidence that the Lord has not forsaken us. Whatever they gathered, God blew away. In their disobedience, God's presence with them appeared to be against them, right? But now, this promise to be with them is different. His presence is no longer disciplinary, but rather it is to be a comfort to his people. The people of Judah should recognize this promise, perhaps from the account of God speaking to Isaac, their, their ancestor, saying, I am the God of Abraham, your father. Fear not, for I am with you and will bless you and multiply your offspring for, the, for my servant Abraham's sake. Or maybe they recognize it from God speaking to Jacob, who was later called Israel, when God said, Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Or maybe they would remember these words from God speaking to Joshua when he was about to enter the promised land and lead the people to conquer the people of Canaan, saying, Today I will, be with, I will begin to exalt you in the sight of all Israel that they may know, as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. Or maybe this brought to the people of Judah's mind what Isaiah had prophesied to the people of Israel so many years ago. As God said through Isaiah, fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Or maybe, maybe just maybe, this promise of I am with you made them think of God's words to Moses after the people of Israel had worshipped the golden calf. After the people had been caught in this idolatry, God told Moses to take the people away from Sinai. And he said that he would send an angel before them to make sure that all the people of Canaan were cleared out, that the people would inherit the promised land. But he told Moses, but I won't go with you. You're a stiff-necked people. I don't want to destroy you. And what did Moses say in return to God? He prayed this prayer. If your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? So what's the significance of God saying, I am with you? God's presence among his people is what differentiates them from all the other peoples of the earth. Is that not true? Is that not what makes followers of Christ, the people of God, the church of God, throughout all the scripture, Old Testament and New Testament, is that not what differentiates us from the rest of the world? God's presence with us. And this is crucial because as God told the people in Deuteronomy, Israel was once the fewest of all peoples. And yet the Lord set his love upon them and chose them. Not because they were a mighty people, but because they were a people of no importance. 
Whereas Paul says to the Corinthians, God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. Brothers and sisters, isn't that what God does? God repeatedly uses the weak, the foolish, and the poor so that through them his glory and grace might be more clearly seen. And isn't that good news? (laughs) Because I am certainly not wise enough, nor strong enough, nor important enough to qualify for earning the grace of God. So praise the Lord that he uses what is weak, that he works through those who are foolish, that he chooses those who are poor and of low estate in order that he would be glorified in them. And this is crucial for the people of Haggai's day too, because they were home from exile, but they were not as they once were. Twice in our verses, if you notice, the people are called the remnant of the people. We see this in verse 12, that Zerubbabel and Joshua, with all the remnant of the people, and then we see it again in verse 14, where he says that the Lord stirred up the spirit of of Zerubbabel and Joshua and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. Why is he calling them the remnant of the people? Because these Jews who return from exile are but a fraction of their pre-exile numbers. Even though they are home, they are a scrap of their former selves. They are no longer a kingdom. They're just a territory. They no longer have a king from the throne of David ruling over them. He's just a governor. And yet, God is still with them. And he rebuked them in order to guide them back into their obedience. And now... In their obedience, he is speaking tenderly to them once more. Now that their fear was properly upon him who can destroy both body and soul, these people were now empowered to no longer fear those who can only kill the body. And to answer our previous question, even though building the temple would surely bring further persecution, God was more deserving of their fear than their adversaries. This fear of God is supremely wise because who is more worthy of fear than the infinite, holy, all-seeing, all-knowing, all-powerful, and perfectly righteous God? And as Paul wrote to the Romans, if this God is for us, then who can be against us? The fear of God, brothers and sisters, has a beautiful way of casting out all other fears. Because if we fear him above all things, what else is there to fear? If we know that our God is for us, who else can possibly be against us? And yet notice how the Lord follows up his message. We see this in verse 14. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Sheatiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. Finding their obedience, fueling their obedience, was the Lord causing them to have the desire to obey. As God's presence was with them, he himself ignited the fires of their devotion for him. 
And now if this sounds strange, consider the beauty of one of God's other promises that he made to Israel through the prophet Jeremiah. Listen to how God works in his people. God spoke through Jeremiah these words to the people of Israel. I will make with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them. And I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. How good is that? How good is that? That God resolves to do good to his people. That God resolves himself to make an everlasting covenant with his people that he will not turn away from doing good to them. And then not only that God won't turn away from doing good to his people, but says, I'll put the fear of me in their hearts so that they won't turn from me. And brothers and sisters, that promise stood for the people of Haggai's day and it still stands for us today. For we who are followers of Christ, we have the promise that God is not only with us, but is within us through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. In Christ, all of our sin has once for all been defeated and forgiven, and so all who place their faith in the grace of God in Christ alone are no longer under the condemnation of sin. Amen. Or as Paul continued to say, who is to condemn? Who is there that could ever bring condemnation upon us? Because Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that who is raised, who is seated at the right hand of God, and who indeed is interceding for us. If the Son of God himself is sitting at the right hand of God the Father and has sent God the Spirit to dwell in our hearts through faith, who can can bring condemnation against us? If God himself has wiped away and forgiven all of our sins, what left is there? So brothers and sisters, it was an act of grace for the Lord to stir up the spirit of the people of Judah. But for us today, we have the very spirit of God who enables us to walk in obedience to Christ. And consider this. Why would we not desire to obey such a God who lovingly corrects whenever we stray who gives his presence to his people, and who he himself enables his people to obey by his very own strength. Truly, this God is worthy of our fear and of our love. He is worthy of our devotion and of our obedience. Now, the chapter of Haggai, the first chapter of Haggai, and simply by telling us that the people came and worked on the house of the Lord, their God, on the 24th day of the month, in the sixth month, in the second year of Darius the king. 24 days after Haggai's original message, the people were working on the temple. Notice that, not, not planning to work on the temple. Apparently the planning had happened during those 24 days, and within 24 days of that original message, the people were working. They had already started to do something. Again, notice that the repentance following the Lord's rebuke was evident by their response of obedience. God commanded them to build the house, and guess what they were now doing? 
working on the house. Brothers and sisters, let us learn by their example. There is a subtle temptation today, I believe, to use conviction of sin as a sort of balm, or dare I even say penitence, for the guilt of sin without ever actually following through with obedience. Indeed, we may even seek after convicting sermons, articles, books, and yet conviction is not the goal. Conviction of sin is always intended to lead to the actual killing of sin and walking in further obedience to Christ. And so as we've said earlier, many are hearers of the word, and yet without obedience to the word, we merely, as James says, deceive ourselves. And remember that the people of Judah already had the altar rebuilt. And so they could have made a great display of offering sacrifices for their sins. They could have gone through all of the religious motions of offering to the Lord of how contrite and broken our hearts are. And while they certainly probably did offer sacrifices for their sin, its lack of mention here in Haggai shows that the people knew that God's delight was more in their conformity to his word than in going through any religious motions. God told them how he would be pleased through the building of his house. And so they built the house. They got to work. And in the same way, as the Lord convicts us of our sin, we must also follow by actually seeking to kill our sin, by actually going through the process of mortifying our sinful desires. And now, of course, brothers and sisters, none of this is to say that our obedience, that our salvation depends upon our obedience to the Lord. Even the rebuke of Haggai in verses 1 through 11 displayed that God had not forsaken his people. Their obedience was stirred up by God's word to them. Their work on the temple was was a submissive response to the Lord who had bound himself to them by an eternal covenant. And so likewise, we also are called to obey and we are commanded to work, but our obedience and our good works are in response to, to our salvation, by grace, through faith, in Christ. We obey in, in loving fear of the God who sent his only son to ransom us from the debt of our sin. We do not obey in order to earn God's favor. We obey because God has shown us favor. And so by this very study of Haggai, brothers and sisters, We have each today heard the word of the Lord. By the hand of Haggai, God has spoken to us. And so the command still stands, build the house of the Lord. Seek first the kingdom of God. Devote your time and resources to God as your highest priority. And now we've seen the example of the people of Judah who responded by obeying the word of the Lord and by working on the house. So the question for us then is, How will we respond? Brothers and sisters, do not be satisfied with merely being convicted of sin. But instead, obey the Lord and begin to seek his kingdom before all things. And so in what ways will you shift from busying yourself with your own kingdom to instead building the kingdom of God? Whether it's 
Bible reading or prayer or the weekly gathering or giving or evangelism or perhaps submitting to Christ as Lord for the very first time. Make God's kingdom more important than your own kingdom and focus more on building God's house than building your own houses. Repent of neglecting God's kingdom by turning from sin and obeying the word of the Lord. So brothers and sisters, may we follow the example of the people of Judah by walking in swift obedience to the Lord. May we trust not in our own ability to obey, but instead place our faith in the triune God who is placing the fear of himself within us. And as we know that disobedience is always around the corner for us yet again, may we be quick to repent of sin and instead to devote ourselves to the work of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, you are good to us. You are a God who has promised to not only be with your people, but has chosen to dwell within us through the grace of Jesus Christ. And so, Father, as we see from the example of the people of Judah, of how they responded to your message, to your rebuke, in obedience, in active obedience, in setting themselves to do what you have commanded them to do, I pray that you would give us a desire, stir up our spirits as well to want to obey you further, to walk in closer obedience to you. But, O Lord, guard us from ever thinking that our obedience earns us any sort of merit before your throne. Guard us from thinking that our obedience earns us favor before your sight, but instead help us to see that the very message of you speaking to our hearts is a sign of your favor to us. And that our favor before you is solely rooted in the person and the work of Jesus Christ dying on our behalf to cleanse us of all of our sins and to give us his imputed righteousness. And Father, from that place, give us a love for obeying you. Give us hearts that yearn for doing the work that you have called us to do. Give us hearts that yearn to be in your word, to meditate upon your law day and night, to constantly petition your throne to be among your people, to give sacrificially, to share the good news with all those who need to hear. Grant us, O Lord, the strength to walk in obedience and to build your house rather than being busy with our own. We love you, O Lord, and it's in Jesus Christ's name that we pray.